Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we will be talking about the Oceans Trilogy. That's what you all voted for us to talk about. Oceans 12 and 13 are now on Netflix, and we felt this was a good opportunity to kind of dive into these movies, and you know, they're, they're unique heist films. It's a kind of a weird trilogy of movies. Um, and obviously we're going to keep getting heist movies, and we'll talk a little bit about Oceans 8. But we wanted to talk more about the the trilogy and sort of this unlikely trio of of hit movies. And uh, there will definitely be time devoted to the divisive Ocean's 12, which we are both fans of. But a lot of people are like, boo, Ocean's 12. But we're going to explain why Ocean's 12 is good, actually. So uh, we're going to dive into all of that. Um, but first, let's talk a little about Ocean's 11, which comes along in 2001. And... You know, I was thinking about Ocean's Eleven the other day, and it's kind of weird when you look at the film now that, like, yeah, like, Brad Pitt was a star, and, like, George Clooney was a rising star, but had not yet... It's hard to, like, to say, like, Clooney had been, had broken out is sort of a, tr- a, a tricky proposition, because he had, like, become a star because of ER, but his movie career was a little uneven. You know, you had stuff like One Fine Day and then you had like Batman and Robin and like The Peacemaker. But then when you get to Out of Sight, when he teams up with Soderbergh for that film, they, Soderbergh and Clooney make a really good pairing. And then Clooney is sort of solid enough to be the title character of Ocean's Eleven. And then the cast is just kind of stacked in a really interesting way because really the big it it has some big star, has some A-listers. Like, Damon is an A-lister. He's won an Oscar by this point. Julia Roberts also has won an Oscar, has been a star since, what, Pretty Woman is 91? Um, so. 90, 91. So she's been a star for a while. Um, and Andy Garcia, people know who he is, so it's good fine to cast him as the antagonist. And then they kind of fill out the rest of the crew with some really interesting choices. Like, you've got you know, Hollywood legends like uh, Elliot Gould and Carl Reiner. But then you've got like sort of like these up and comers like Scott Kahn. And then you've got like um, how the guy that plays the tech guy, his name always escapes me, but he's a Soderbergh collaborator because he was in, yeah. he was in Schizopolis. And it's just this weird mishmash of personality, like Bernie Mac. Uh, you've got him. You've got Don Cheadle, who hadn't quite blown up. Uh, he hadn't done Hotel Rwanda yet, but like his star was rising. Uh, and it's just a really fascinating cast. And then I think to me, the secret of Ocean's Eleven that I wish more studios would take a cue from is that they remade a bad movie. <laughs> like the original <laughs> Ocean's Eleven with the Rat Pack is a bad movie. It's basically just watching the Rat Pack get drunk and hang out for yeah. a while. And there's like ostensibly a heist, but like no one gives a shit. And it's not like this revered, beloved film that everyone knows and can recite. And like, it's just, it's there with like, Oh, what if we put handsome people into a Vegas heist scenario and ran it from there? And I think that's sort of the secret of oceans 11 of why it's able to take on a life of its own. Yeah, no, I think, and that was kind of part of the original pitch that Soderbergh and producer Jerry Weintraub had was, you know, get, Pack this thing with a bunch of recognizable stars. And the casting of it was really interesting because Jerry Weintraub essentially went and lied to people. So he went to Damon and would say, I've got Clooney, I've got Pitt, I've got Cheadle. Are you in? And he's like, yeah, sure. And then he would go to Brad Pitt and he'd say, I've got Damon, I've got Clooney, I've got Cheadle. Are you in? So he kind of like roped everyone into getting together. Um, and I think Soderbergh also had a pretty strict no asshole rule. Like he he didn't want egos on that set. Everyone had to take a pay cut. Um, not coincidentally, Mark Wahlberg was originally cast in the Damon role, um, and then dropped out. <laughs> Wahlberg, whose who's credo is "Yo, man, you getting paid yet?" <laughs> yeah, I well, I mean, I find it very into like this. 
I think this trilogy has a different energy if that's Wahlberg instead of Damon. Oh, absolutely. Because um, because the thing is, is Wahlberg can't really do vulnerability. Yeah, uh, and that's, that that's Linus's whole thing is that he's he's insecure and he is less than these other people, and he he wants to live up to. He's the rookie. Um, yeah, he wants to live up to his family name. His family, you know, is a you know a uh, famous thieves. Um, uh, and so in putting together that cast, I don't know, I found it really interesting. And then, uh, you know, obviously Soderbergh is, is pretty hot at this point. Cause he's coming off, you know, he, he essentially reinvented his career with out of sight. Um, cause uh, you know, he had made like Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy and stuff. And those were just kind of like weird art movies that no one saw. Um, and out of sight was a movie that he didn't write. And he, I think he has said it in, in hindsight, that's when it, something kind of locked into him is that he, when he chose not to write the scripts himself, the films were better. So he would help out on the script, but he, he didn't uh, necessarily write that himself. Um, but in the year 2000, he made Aaron Brockovich and traffic in the same year, both came out the same year. Both were nominated for best picture, both were nominated for best director. So Soderbergh went up against himself and won, which is insane. Like I thinking about like trying to predict that Oscar ballot, I would be like, oh, obviously Soderbergh is going to cancel himself out here. Like, nope, they gave him the Oscar for traffic. Um, and I don't know if so Ocean's Eleven came out a year later. So I don't know if he had already signed on or was like in the midst of developing Ocean's Eleven when he was getting all that buzz off of traffic and Aaron Brockovich. Um, but definitely he was seen as someone who could spearhead this and and was kind of given the given some creative freedom to to kind of make the kind of movie that he wanted uh and i think you're right i think clooney you know was a a recognizable star and a big name but hadn't necessarily found his groove yet although i do think out of sight um was a big turning point in his career as well uh you know obviously brad pitt and julia roberts are the two biggest stars in this movie uh and the movie and the film really leans into that star power of those two people when it's funny when you say uh, Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts, I immediately think of The Mexican, which is not a very good movie. And it's directed by Gore Verbinski, of all yeah. people. It should a be a better movie. film. It's a what very is that movie film. even? How would you categorize that movie? It's kind of like a it's like a comedy caper, but with like kind of like a dark edge. It's very weird. And like it's Gandolfini's in it. Yeah. And like it's it's a weird film. But anyway, back to Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> It's it's a film that knows how to be breezy in a way that I think Soderbergh adds a little substance to it. Not that it's like a deep film by any stretch, but it's like for me, like Ocean's Eleven is a movie I can just watch anytime. It's just it's yeah. a very fun, enjoyable film, but it doesn't feel like it never feels like a guilty like, oh, this is just empty. This is just, you know, attractive people having fun. Like, I feel like the script is really tight and the filmmaking is really tight. Like, I feel that Soderbergh um, makes it so that you that the, the heist feels cinematic and clever, and it's kind of basically he's playing up to the level of the kind of sophistication of these characters. So rather than just being like, "Hey, here's a bunch of famous people, throw them together, you'll show up," he really plays it like this is like as as if it's as important as traffic. Yeah, no, the filmmaking is absolutely, I think, what sets this movie apart. It's Soderbergh setting the tone. So he's his own cinematographer. Visually, I think Ocean's Eleven is absolutely stunning. Uh, it, it's unique for a star-driven commercial picture um, in the fact that it's using very um, kind of like accentuated lighting cues, uh, a bit of an odd framing at times. Uh, the way he moves the camera, I think, is really... Um, energetic and and interesting like the camera is interesting but the camera is always in service of the story and i think you can tell a lot in these three movies of how where he decides to put the camera when all of the uh, gang is together i think he always finds unique ways to uh frame up everyone together but also framing them up in a way that like he knows that linus is going to say this laugh line here but the scene starts on this character and then goes to this character um, I think one of the other big hallmarks of Ocean's Eleven is really long takes, but not long takes that are movement oriented, but long takes that are, you know, just let the scene play out between mm -hmm. two characters. And I think that, again, makes all the difference. This cast is electric. Like everyone is so good and so funny together. Um, I know there was some improvisation uh, and I think that was born out of the cast just getting along so well Um but there you get this sense like there are these inside jokes between not just the actors, but the characters like when George Clooney and Brad Pitt are talking, you can tell they have a history. Um, 
And this is another thing that that is true of all three of these films is that the scripts don't the scripts aren't overwritten. Like it doesn't take three lines to say what could be said in a look or two words. Um, they really get the point across and don't don't uh, don't push themselves to try and uh, over explain things or, you know, a character's backstory or how something works. Um, I think about, you know, the the reveal of Tess and the reveal of, Ju- reveal of Julia Roberts's character when Brad Pitt and Matt Damon are at the bottom of those stairs. Brad Pitt doesn't stop and say, here, let me tell you the entire backstory of Tess and why she's important. Um, you have you cut to that scene of of George Clooney and Brad Pitt talking kind of outside that hangar that's framed really well in the dark. Uh, and it just it says so they say so little, but they also say so much in saying so little. I think I think that's absolutely one of this film series strengths. Yeah, it's it's incredibly strong when it comes to doling out information. It it, yeah. it kind of boils down to like not only what's essential, but what can be said visually. What what yeah. are the what are the sort of the little keys um, that can like clue you in uh, that you know even even if it's just a little thing like the the uh, the ads for the hookers like that sort of like yeah. glanced at or the or the fact that the uh, the air the air freshener is in the car like you know just sort of showing these little things that will have little payoffs later but no one's like remember to put the this and the that to say that like there's no it it really tries to to push away from exposition when it can. And then when it does have need to do exposition, it knows how to make it entertaining. So when they go to Saul and not Saul, um, Elliot Gould's character. Um, uh, oh yeah. Uh, and, God, what's his name? Ruben. Ruben. Yes. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, we want to do this. And then Ruben's like, here's all the times that it's failed. And it lets Soderbergh sort of be like, here's this, you know, dude, like sort of like a parody of like, you know, a fifties film and a seventies film and an eighties film. And, yeah. you know, they sort of do those quick things in succession of like, these are the stakes. This is why it's difficult. This is why it can't be done. And then even when you get to sort of, um, the, uh, when, when they break down at Ruben's house, like here's, you know, here's the vault, here's what we can't do or like, which we won't have, like the way it sort of has that nice pitter pattern. Yeah to sort of the explanation of how do we get to the vault? Like, and here are all, here are all the obstacles. It's a really fun way of sort of laying it all out. It's super fun. And it, you're, you're drawn in from just a pure plot perspective and you want to see if these guys pull it off. And then at the absolute perfect moment, you get emotional stakes, which is the addition of Tess, um, which kind of throws a wrench in the entire thing. And, and uh, you know, Julia Roberts performance is, tremendous and she plays really well off of Clooney. Um Clooney is great. Like he's a, I feel like we underrate him as an actor, but he's so good in these movies. Do we underrate him as an actor? I feel like the only reason we underrate him as an actor is because he doesn't do a ton of movies anymore. Like when you think yeah, about it, like his true. last big like his last performance was in like Catch 22 which he directed, which was a TV yeah. series. But like he has two Oscars. <laughs> For acting? I know he won. He has Siriana. one acting. I'm sorry. He has one acting Oscar for Syriana. Yeah. And then he has. I could, Did he not? I thought he won Best Actor for Michael Clayton. I don't think so. I thought that was the year. Um, I could be wrong. But he had, he definitely he has another one for, for producing for yeah. Argo. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I mean, he's done like really good performances. Like he, he knows how to do comedy. I think um, The American is a really strong performance from him. Not a lot of people saw it. But like we all know, like he was great in Michael Clayton. Um, he, but like he's very charming. I mean, the way I think of George Clooney is sort of like our he's our Cary Grant. Like yeah. he has that suave sophistication, but he can do comedy. But he can also be really dark and sinister when you need him to be. Like, I, he, I think he's a great actor. I wish he would he would star in more movies. You know, you just want to talk about the monuments men and how yes, much you mo- love it. <laughs> that oh man, that movie frustrates the <laughs> hell out of me. All oh, of Clooney's man. directorial efforts uh, after really? Good Night and Good Luck frustrated. Oh, okay, I was going to say because I like I like I like Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. I like um, I like I even think Leatherheads is kind of fun for what it is. I haven't seen Leatherheads. That's one you haven't seen Leatherheads. It's kind of fun in a screwball kind of way. It's nothing special, but it's cute. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Good Night and Good Luck is it's obviously his best film but anyway no Clooney's great in this and like everyone is great but I also like how it's a film that's so breezy and confident in its tone where it's like 
it knows where to take the character beats. So for yeah. instance, like when they all go in the house and Matt Damon is still sitting by the pool and Ruben comes up to him and goes like, Oh, you having a good time? Oh yeah. Great. Get in the goddamn house. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah, it, it's exactly that. Like that moment tells you about character without them having to sit down and discuss Linus's father and you know, how Linus feels and who Linus is like, it's, it's show don't tell is, is this entire movie yeah, and then right. that economy of storytelling that Soderbergh is so good at. And it, I like, I also like the things that it doesn't bother to explain. Like why is Rusty always eating? Yeah, <laughs> I just have to be eating in every scene. And yeah. I'm sure the reason for it is like Brad Pitt probably suggested it. And like to keep his physique, he has to keep eating or it's just something to do with his hands. Or I think he said it was like matching he, or something like I think he said he wanted the idea that like Rusty is so busy and on like always doing things that that's when he eats. It's like mm -hmm. he's always eating because he never sits down to eat, never sits down to eat, I, yeah. you know, and which is fine. But it's just it's a fun character detail. Yeah, just like sort of. Uh, you know, Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn, like their sort of sibling rivalry is kind yeah. of just a fun, so funny character. Oh gosh, when they're yelling "Balloon Boy," <laughs> <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And I just, it's a good, you know, you like these characters. You don't make, you may not know them forwards and backwards, but they're yeah. they're charming enough that you just want to spend time with them, and that like you hope they'll succeed. And furthermore, you hope they'll succeed for their own enrichment. That's another yeah. thing that like, I wonder like if you may, it's like, no, they need the money to save the orphanage. Like, yeah. no, they want the money because they want to be rich and like, it's good <laughs> to have. And it's this, I mean, they're stealing it from another, they're stealing it from a rich guy who's insured. So yeah. it is sort of like a victimless crime, but they are just, they're stealing for their own enrichment. There's no greater <laughs> yes. cause. And I love that. Like, I like that it's kind of unapologetic about that. No, and uh, you know, I I rewatched the entire trilogy this past weekend, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen Ocean's Eleven. It must be one of the movies I've seen the most in terms of rewatchability, um, and it doesn't get old, which is interesting because it's a movie that does hinge on plot and surprises and twists and reveals. But I, I mean, Soderbergh built this movie to last. Like those, it's not all about the twists and reveals and like here's what actually happened. Um, like it doesn't take away from what you watch them do. What you watch them do is still tons of fun. Just a fad, just a programming note that you're going to need. I'm having flickering brownouts here. So like if my power goes out, we'll just have to, I'll let you guys know, but okay. I had to time out here for this little section. Okay. I think we'll probably know. Cause then you'll just cut out. Right. But I wanted you to be aware, like where did Matt go? Yeah. <laughs> Brown. My power is flickering. All okay. Right. Cool. Okay, so back to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's it's a very rewatchable film. Like, because I think it, the setup and payoffs are so good yeah. that you just kind of, like, you're you're there for, for all of it. And it knows, and it's not afraid of to be earnest when it needs to be. Like, that scene of, like, the Claire de Lune scene where they're all just gathered by the fountain. And, yeah. like, Soderbergh kind of told him, like, you guys just leave when you feel it's appropriate for your character to leave. Like, yeah. It just to sort of trust to me, that's a good summation of like trusting the actors, trusting the film and saying, like, I know what we're making here. And I think to me, you know, it, I do think this is kind of Soder one of Soderbergh's finest films. I know it's not as like it's not like traffic, which is serious, you know, or, or something like that. But I think it's really freaking good. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think it's one of his best films. And it's interesting because it's not a film that's necessarily like about something like it's not a film that like oh you know the the symbolism and the metaphor really enrich it and make it deeper um it in it and i think that just goes to show that not every film has to be that in order to be a great film you better be a fucking great film in order yeah. for it to last in order for that to work because i do find the ones that endure for me are ones that i think about because thematically they uh you know have something that uh resonates with me in my life or something like that uh but this is just a, like a tremendously well executed film and it's also not frivolous like you said like it has moments to kind of be quiet and be a little reflective as those characters by the fountain. It has emotional stakes with Tess, um, which I think, you know, without Julia Roberts giving that performance, without that kind of emotional heart to the story, I'm not sure it works as well um, because that it gives you another reason to root for it. And it gives you another reason to root for Danny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, and obviously the film is a big hit. People love it. Huge. And then you get yeah. to Ocean's 12. And this is where I kind of want to dig in. Because yeah. Ocean's Twelve was 
I don't think it's been really well received. I don't know if it was a flop. Um, it did really well at the box office. Yeah, that's what I uh, thought because it was released like at like at the around the holiday season. Yeah, so um, worldwide, the first one made four hundred fifty million, and Ocean Twelve made three hundred and sixty-two million. So it did very well. Yeah, but people, I think, get mad at Ocean's Twelve for not being Ocean's Eleven. And the yeah. idea is, and the thing is, is like I think you have to sort of work with Ocean's Twelve on its own terms, which is that Ocean's Twelve isn't interested in the heist. And for some people, that's like, well, then why would you make a heist film? It's like, well, it's not really a heist film, is it? What it is are sort of what we're going to take is we're going to take this group of guys and the way that we're going to challenge them is we're going to have them constantly screw up. We're going to have them constantly be like one up. And people are like, well, why would I want to see that? It's like, because you didn't see that the first time. The first time you saw them succeed and kind of everything went to plan. What if we made the movie where nothing goes to plan except the most straightforward part of the plan, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> yeah. sort of, it's not really a heist, you know, the elaborate heist film. And I think people sort of, they feel like it's kind of a bait and switch on them. Like, Oh, I go see an oceans film. I want to see this film, but like I get into oceans 12 and oceans 12 is very fun. Yeah. It's just fun in a different way. Like I, I like start, I, I almost start crying from how loud, how hard I'm laughing, especially like the way Soderbergh uses freeze frames in this movie. Like when, when Rusty realizes his phone has been stolen, <laughs> just that, that pause, like he's been punched in the face. Like it's just, it's just those great little moments. And it has like a very strong, like European flavor to it, which yeah. it should because it's taking place largely in Europe. Like it's, it's a film that's trying to be different. And I think when you accept that it's different on its own terms, you have a lot of fun with it. And you kind of appreciate that it's not trying to just redo Ocean's Eleven, that they are trying to do something different. And they're, they're taking these big sort of outrageous swings. The fact that like one of their heists is based on, yeah, Tess kind of looks like Julia Roberts. <laughs> and then like, we're going to have her meet Bruce Willis. And like, but Bruce Willis plays himself. Yeah. It's Which so... was a big deal. Like, people really backlashed against that. And apparently even the studio was not super on board with that idea. And Soderbergh convinced them it was the right way to go. But to me, like, that is, like, it's... To me, I, I feel like it's such a part of, like... the Like, it's not just, like, a fun, cutesy thing that's dropped in. The whole film is, again, nothing works. So they're like, even celebrity doesn't work. Nothing works for these guys. Like they, like, like they're trying to come up with these, these sort of like slapdash plans. But then you realize, like, no, no, the plans are are like when they're like, and then by, and then by eleven thirty, we're all in jail. And like, yeah, at the time when before you see the payoff, you're like, oh, he, you know, they're just being fatalistic. It's like, no, no, the plan was to get them into jail. Yeah. Because they needed to like, they had to lean into their failure. And then I get it. Like the actual heist is like they they swap a backpack <laughs> like i get that that's not like an elaborate heist but that's not what the film is about no and i, I don't know i i think we'll probably talk a little bit more about this when we get to oceans 13 but i do like that it is not oceans 11 again yes. um and i you know i think it's really ambitious of soderbergh to change his entire visual style for this film like it is shot like a european film um, it is not shot exactly like Ocean's Eleven. It's not using those really bold colors like it was. Um, I don't think it uses as many long takes. It's using a lot of zooms, um, kind of a lot of like it feels almost like a 70s film. Uh, you think about oh, when they're all being 70s Europe. Yeah. Yeah. When they're all being escorted out of jail and it, it, you know, every single time the camera zooms in on them and follows them along and then zooms in and follows them along. But you also have, you know, shots that like start close and then zoom out that I think are really fascinating and really fun. It's sort of like just kind of like having fun with the format and having fun, you know, again in Europe against this different backdrop. Ocean's Eleven was a, a pretty visually dark film that mostly took place at night um, or inside casinos. Ocean's 12 takes place uh, largely outdoors uh, against just really beautiful architecture uh, during the daytime. And I think it's just, I don't know, I appreciate that he tried to make a very different film. And, I, and it's a different film that I enjoy. I think it's a lot of fun. And I think the film, one of the criticisms lobbied against it was that like, oh, it looked like the actors were having fun but forgot to come up with a story. But, uh, you know, part of the fun of Ocean's 11 is seeing them rib each other. And, you know, so you get to Ocean's 12, you get to an entire scene set on uh, at a train station where George Clooney is asking people if he looks 50 or not. <laughs> like, that's the scene. And it's very funny and very fun. Later, you find out that scene is actually pivotal to the plot um, because it's showing where they're going, which is to Paris and not uh, to where you think they're going. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just find 
I find this movie super delightful. I love the uh, the dance break that uh, Vincent Cassell's uh, character has when he's, you know, jumping through all the lasers and everything and getting through. Unsung hero of this entire trilogy is David Holmes, whose score is yes. incredible across all three. Yeah. Well, and I also feel like um, the uh, the Vincent Cassell character is sort of a parody of like, oh, so you want a guy who does elaborate heists. Yeah. And like, that's kind of the character. He does these elaborate heists, but he's by himself. He doesn't have anyone to play off of. And then he leaves like his little calling card. He's super duper French. He's super duper French. Um, <laughs> you know, and it's just this kind of overdone, over, you know, kind of elaborate thing. And I feel like the way Ocean's 12 makes a case for itself is by being different, you know? And I guess I, I do feel like, and I've, I've said this on other films as well. I think sometimes audiences and, and, and critics as well. I mean, not that critics aren't audiences, but people get too hung up on the packaging. They get way too hung up on like, well, the box said it would do this and now it's doing something else. And like, you have to divorce marketing and even franchises sometimes from what you think you're going to get, because that is not, you know, the film is the film. And so I get it. Like, oh, I went into an Oceans film and I expect a heist. But like, well, it's not a heist. And I'm sorry, you you know, but Soderbergh never said, I'm making another big heist film. He said, I'm making an Oceans sequel. And this is what he wanted it to be. And so when you accept it on its own terms, and its terms is these people hanging out and having fun with each other and kind of being fuck-ups, yeah. it works out. I think the film works when you, you know, when you get on its level, um, and that it still coheres, like the plot makes sense. It's just not Ocean's Eleven and that's okay because Ocean's Eleven exists. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the addition of Catherine Zeta-Jones. Like you didn't have, uh, you know, an authority figure trying to track them down in Ocean's Eleven. Mm -hmm. I think it was a really interesting twist and an authority figure who has a history with Rusty. Um, so if Ocean's Eleven is Danny's movie, Ocean's Twelve, I think, is Rusty's movie. I think Ocean's Thirteen is is kind of Linus's movie. Um, but and, and I think that's a fun kind of arc for the three films. Um, but I think Catherine Zeta-Jones is a really great addition to um, the ensemble here. I do wish we could have seen more from her in Ocean Thirteen or something like that. Um, but I don't know. I think she works well with the team here. I think she's also there to have fun and to kind of play around. Um, and the scene she has with Julia Roberts when she catches them in the act, trying to pull off the Julia Roberts thing, I think it's really funny. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 delightful. I really do think Ocean's Twelve is just like it's a different kind of movie, but that doesn't mean it's not fun in its own right. No, no, yeah, I think you just have to accept the film on its own terms. And if you, I would highly suggest if you haven't seen it in a while, go back and rewatch it. Um, accepting that it is not Ocean's Eleven again, it's a very different kind of film. Um, and it's also fun to read the film. I can't remember who originated this take, but as a metaphor for making a sequel, if you consider Andy Garcia as the studio, because Andy Garcia forces them to come back and do another heist. Uh, so the studio forces Soderbergh back to make another heist movie, make another Oceans film, because the first one was so successful. Um, and they have to go abroad because, you know, they have to go shoot in Europe because they can't shoot in America because they're all too famous now. Uh, and their heart's just not in it. And they're having having troubles uh, kind of getting it uh, getting it off the ground. Uh, I think that's a really fun way to look at it. Yeah. Um, although I would counter that. I think their hearts are still in it because I think this this group of guys just likes hanging out with each other. Yeah, I think and I think that was just like more of a uh, like an inside joke uh, in there. Um, yeah, there's the inside joke of all inside jokes or, or meta textual jokes is the joke that ends Oceans 13. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but the thing so the thing we've been saying, like, oh, if you just want Oceans 11, just watch Oceans 11. And that's the problem I have with Oceans 13. Yeah. Is that Oceans 13? Like, it's fun. Like, I don't think Oceans 13 is a bad movie. The problem no. is, is just like Oceans 13 is sort of like what the people wanted from Oceans 12. It's like, make it like the thing I liked before. And they're like, all right. <laughs> and yeah. so what you get is something that's like the one before, but not quite as good, which doesn't make a lot of sense when you stop to think about it, because it's not like these films are connected by one long narrative thread. It's not like, oh, the trilogy must end with Oceans 13. This is the culmination of the saga. No, it's just, it's another heist. Well, okay, but I, I've seen a heist in Vegas. And it was Ocean's Eleven, and it's and it holds up very well. Yeah. So Ocean's Thirteen kind of just feels like a redo, and it has like the thing is, is like I can't really say anything that's like oh this is about Ocean's Thirteen it doesn't work because it is a lot of fun. Like there's a lot of fun scenes like Don Cheadle um, playing the the stunt guy or yeah. like um, 
you know, Casey Affleck's misadventures at the Mexican Dice Factory. That's, I think, sneakily the best part of the movie is Casey yes. Affleck and, and Scott Kahn, like, uh, doing, like, a workers' liberation <laughs> yes. in Mexico, fighting the man. Where they've been sent down there just to, like, do dice, but they find out the working conditions are terrible. And yes. so it's, like, fight for liberation for the workers. <laughs> it's a great subplot. That's the thing. Like, it's an entertaining film. I think Al Pacino's a fun villain. Um you know, I feel like I, I, the stuff they do to poor David Pamer is really <laughs> yeah. funny. Like, there's nothing in it that's like, oh, this is, th- it doesn't work because of X. It works. It yeah. works fine. It's just like you get, but you get to the end of it and you're like, all right, that was a fun heist film. But it's kind of like you kind of leave it because you're like, I, this is good. Ocean's 11 is better. And Ocean's 12 at least has the benefit of being so different that you can enjoy it on its own terms. Whereas Ocean's 13 immediately draws comparisons to Ocean's 11. I also think 13 is also the least visually ambitious of the three. Like the cinematography is, is much more straightforward and much more kind of plain spoken. Um, the production design is incredible of the bank mm. hotel. Uh, they built all of that on a soundstage, and I think it, it it's very fun to kind of, you know, move around. I, in there. I would say visually it's not as ambitious. I would say editing-wise it's the most ambitious because, I mean, just look at the first act alone. The yeah. first act is a construction of flashbacks. Yeah, like, yeah The yeah. structure of the film is really impressive, and the way it sort of jumps around and, like, has to That's sort true. of juggle all these characters kind of moving. Like, I, I don't know. I think it handles its moving parts very well. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I like Ellen Barkin. I like the addition of Ellen Barkin as well. I think she's a hoot, uh, yeah. in the film. Um, and yeah, as you said, Al Pacino, like Al Pacino is fun. Uh, you know, it's, it's fun to see him put on a spray tan and kind of go toe to toe. Uh, like character wise though, it does feel like there's a little bit less of Danny and a rusty in it. Well, that's that, that I would say the issue is like all the character stakes are kind of tied up in with Ruben, yeah. which I like. I think it's like he's like the mentor figure. They all love him and like they want to do right by him. But your trade off is you don't get any tests. You don't get any of, of Catherine Zeta-Jones's character like you just and, and like you said, like there's not really although the scene where they're crying at the Oprah story. Yes, that one's fun. is is great. Yeah. Yeah, that scene is fun, and I love the the twist at the end where they force Andy Garcia to give uh, like fifteen million dollars or to give all his his to yeah. give his take to Oprah. Yeah, to to, like, to, to this camp for uh, for children yeah. is uh, is very funny. Um, and, and Danny Kennedy goes, "You think this is funny? It sure shit ain't sad." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I like, uh, I really like Linus's arc. Like I said, like, you know, in Ocean's Eleven, Linus is the rookie. He doesn't really know, you know, he's talented, but he he lacks finesse and he's always kind of worried about his parents. In Ocean's Twelve, we meet his mom, who has to bail him out of jail. Like, she kind of becomes the linchpin. In Ocean's Thirteen, like, he's on the phone with his dad and his dad wants to talk to Danny or Rusty and they, like, hold their hand out. And Linus is like, nope. And, like, uh, you know, gets it done. And, like, he finally kind of comes into his own. The nose plays. Yeah. Yeah, the nose plays, which is an inside joke to I don't know which film. Um, maybe it was Ocean's 12, but like he wanted to wear a fake nose and the studio said no. Um, I don't know if it was a Soderbergh film or not, but mm. uh, it, it's very funny. Yeah, Matt Damon, like one of our greatest living actors, who I also think is somewhat uh, underrated. You know, he's never won an Oscar. Yeah. Well, he has not for, an acting Oscar. for acting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, yeah, I do feel like Damon is sort of like, when is he going to get his acting Oscar, if ever? And I was reading, as I was watching his film, these films, I was kind of going back and finding Soderbergh interviews about them. And he was, Soderbergh was talking about making Behind the Candelabra with Michael Douglas. And Michael Douglas um, was noting how uh, when he was Matt Damon's age, he never would have come close to anything like Behind the Candelabra. And how like Matt Damon was just very egoless and like whatever is best for the project, whatever is best for the character. And you can see that in these Oceans films. I mean, in Oceans 11, he hadn't done Born yet, but he had done like uh, Talented Mr. Ripley and Saving Private Ryan. You know, he was getting famous. And then after Born, he probably could have said, you know, make me a bigger role in the Oceans movies or I'm not going to come back. And they don't really like Linus is is always a, a strong supporting player. Um, and I think by the time you get to Ocean's 13, you can't ignore the fact that Matt Damon is a massive draw. And so you want to give him a little bit more to do. Um but I think he's always there to kind of, you know, do what what is best for the story. And, you know, and he, he, and, 
And at the end of the day, he did get his lead in a Soderbergh film with The Informant, which is... Yeah, I was going to say, I think The Informant is maybe one of Soderbergh's best films and one of Damon's best performances ever. Yeah. It's so good. It's so freaking good. (laughs) It's so fun. The gluconate guy, he's out of the job. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that movie is great. Uh, If you've not seen The Informant, I highly suggest seeking out The Informant. Um, And speaking of Soderbergh, I mean... So he makes uh, Ocean's Eleven after, you know, traffic Aaron Brockovich out of sight, which, uh, you know, do very well critically, uh, you know, get awards, uh, do very well at the box office. In between the Ocean's movies, here's what he made. So after Ocean's Eleven, he made Full Frontal, which no one saw, and Solaris, which everyone hated. Uh, And then he made Ocean's Twelve. And then he made Bubble, which was like the very first... Yeah, the no one saw BOD film. Yeah, very first movie released on the internet, and then The Good German, which was a massive failure, yeah. <laughs> expensive, um, and then comes back and does Ocean's Thirteen. So these were kind of, you know, you could see them as cash grabs, but he's not he's not treating them as such. He's still treating them with the um, experimental kind of joie de vivre that you see throughout his career. Right. Uh, although Thirteen feels a little safer, and I wonder if the the expensive failure of the good German had something to do with it. It may have. I mean, the thing is they were sort of these, he was, I, he was sort of doing the kind of the one for them, one for me kind of thing or, yeah. But I mean, he was also sort of, I think Soderbergh really wrestles with the, the studio system in a very clear way. And we saw that we talked about that when we talked about Logan Lucky about how like, this was a film with a lot of, it's a very marketable film, but so he's like, but you know, let's not do TV advertising. Let's, I'm going to control the advertising. We're going to do it all on social and the film flopped. And he was like, Oh, I learned something. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't um, like, Oh, woe is me. Oh no, my career is over. He was like, Oh, interesting. So I learned that. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing like Soderbergh, like is sort of, sort of is so nimble in his filmmaking that he's just kind of found a way to keep, to keep on. You know, and I think he knows sort of in his back pocket where like if you were ever to get in a situation where they'd be like, oh, you can't make X, Y and Z. Like, first off, he's making very small films. Yeah. Like he's shooting movies on iPhones. He's making like Unsane and High Flying Bird. Like he's not really running into like, oh, I can't make my epic because he made his epic and no one saw it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for those who are wondering, it's Che, which is a two part film that no one has seen. I have not seen Che. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Che because I really don't. I don't really want to see (laughs) Che. I don't want to watch four hours of that. Um, But I would say, like, I think Soderbergh is just he keeps it. You know, he's he's a very interesting filmmaker. um, But I think he's sort of secure enough in the kind of films that he's making and also the talent that he's able to draw. Um, and the speed and also and then finally the speed at which he works like he's a filmmaker that basically has a, a first cut by the end of production. Yeah. Yeah. And on the Nick, he like streamlined it even more like he would edit an entire episode on the car ride home like he would just get it done like they would shoot the day scenes and he would edit that day scenes on the car ride back to his house. And so by the end of the week, that entire episode was edited and ready to go. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just I think also that just comes with, you know, decades of experience. Yeah. Um, it's kind of fascinating when you go back to, you know, a film like Sex, Lies, and Videotape or Schizopolis, and you're kind of watching him sort of get a sense of who he is as a as an artist. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, well, let's talk a little bit about Ocean's 8, because Ocean's 8 is sort of this odd duck. So it's not directed by Soderbergh. It's directed by um, Gary Ross, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it exists in the Ocean's world. It has some cameos. Um it's big issue is that it, because without Soderbergh, it kind of lacks the style of those other movies, which is a shame because I feel like the cast is great. It's a fun film to watch. I enjoy it. Um, I would happily see a sequel, but I also feel like it's sort of without Soderbergh, it just, it's sort of like heist film, but like done under the oceans banner. Yeah. It's what, it's exactly what you would feel like a heist film. It's exactly what you feel like an Oceans movie not directed by Steven Soderbergh would feel like Uh, in that, you know, it kind of has all the trappings, but it doesn't necessarily have that kind of extra spark that really sets it apart and makes it different. Yeah, it it doesn't have sort of the colorful visuals, the character. There aren't there's not enough time really devoted to character moments. You know, there's not like a like. 
uh, a moment where two characters are just hanging out, having fun. Every scene has to sort of drive the plot forward. Um, and it, it just doesn't, it doesn't sort of have that same rhythm, even though, again, all the actresses are charismatic. You, you're rooting for them to succeed. It has the twists. It has the sort of the elaborate heist. It does what it's supposed to do, but it's missing that sort of something extra. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a joyful film. Like, it's a it's a fun movie to watch, and it's you know, it's not a movie that I think is bad or makes me angry or anything. It, it it's not even that frustrating in in it being a spinoff because it's directed by Gary Ross, because Soderbergh only produced it. It doesn't feel like like ah, Soderbergh really swung and missed here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the casting is great. I think Sandra Bullock, Kate Blanchett, you know, Anne Hathaway, I think is really terrific in the film, um, and kind of Loki steals it. I think. Uh, playing essentially dual roles. Uh, She gets to play two two different sides to one character. Um, I would watch another one of those. I I just kind of wish it were... I don't know. I don't want it to be super... Like I'm not saying it has to be super closely tied to the other Oceans film. It doesn't even need to have characters. But I think think you see what set those films apart Mm -hmm. um, was Soderbergh and his kind of knack for really nailing those really dryly funny character moments. Um, And and maybe that's just, you know, Ocean's 8 didn't want to be that. Maybe Ocean's 8 just kind of wanted to move away, and and that's kind of the style it went in. Again, I think it was fine. And I think it did pretty well. I mean, yeah, it it made almost $300 million. Yeah, and it didn't cost $300 million. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm kind of, I'm a a bit perplexed why they haven't sort of tried to move forward with another one. Um, yeah, same here. Because yeah, three hundred million against a seventy million dollar budget—that's essentially what the other Ocean's films were. I mean, twelve was the most expensive; it was one hundred and ten million, and Ocean's thirteen, and it made three hundred sixty-two million. And Ocean's thirteen went back down to eighty-five million dollar budget, and it made like three hundred and fifteen, three hundred ten yeah. million. They're just they're fun like summer caper films, and yeah. like people want to see them. And again, it's sort of you know I think had they done a more traditional marketing model for Logan Lucky. Um, that which is super fun. That oh, Logan is Lucky so is fun. amazing. It's really funny, and again has like these really great comedy set pieces that are and just it, like a joke. Yeah, like, so but also like moments like to be weird, like go see the bear in the woods. Yeah, gets <laughs> <laughs> amazing. And, and that Game of Thrones joke is like one oh of the God. most beautiful. It's jokes an all timer. <laughs> um, yeah. It's terrific. And just Daniel Craig, just I mean, if you liked Knives Out at all, if you like Daniel Craig and Knives Out, uh, I mean, you haven't seen the half of his comedic sensibilities. Yeah, you haven't seen Logan Lucky. So, yeah, I um, you know, it's funny when you were talking about like, oh, if they made an ocean sequel, like, oh, who would direct it? And, you know, it reminded me, like, do you know who I don't know if we've talked about this, but do you know who like Soderbergh's protégés are? Have we talked about this? The Russo brothers, the Russo brothers. Yeah. And like you would never think like, oh, yeah, they trained under. Yeah. Soderbergh because they've gone in such a different direction in their career now to make yeah. Marvel movies. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call them protégés. They were I, like they had a film at Slamdance that Soderbergh saw and liked mm. and decided to kind of back them and mentor them a little bit, I think. Well, um, if he's mentoring them, they are kind of his protégés. Yeah, but he's done the same for like Amy Simetz. Um, That's true. You know, she's someone for the he, girlfriend experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um but yeah, uh, Russo Brothers Ocean's movie, I don't think I would want to see. <laughs> I would very much like to see an Amy Simon's Ocean's yeah. movie. That would fun. be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Gary Ross was such a weird choice for Ocean's 8. Very and I know strange. he's friends with Soderbergh. Um, Soderbergh shot some, he directed some second unit on The Hunger Games. Um, but Gary Ross is kind of hard to pin down. He's only made a handful of films. Some of them are great, uh, like Pleasantville. Um, yeah, yeah, he's a tough one. Um I mean, Free State of Jones, which I don't think anyone saw. I, again, I've seen him. <laughs> I've seen, I'm the only one who's seen Free State of Jones. And I'm, by the way, Full Frontal, which we you briefly mentioned, is yeah. abysmal. I think that might be Soderbergh's <laughs> worst movie. That one is really terrible. Because um, it, it's basically him kind of wrestling with like how to be in Hollywood and like the fakeness of it all. But sort of like it, it's just in a very uneasy relationship with its subject matter. <laughs> Um, anyway, but yeah, the oceans films remain great. Um, and, uh, I think they sort of, I, I, to me, I think they, they sort of set a high watermark in sort of the heist genre. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can't think of like another heist movie that's come close. Um, like in recent years, like obviously there's like if you go decades back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like the Italian job or like Rafifi or Rififi or, uh, you know, but But like movies that came after it. I mean, I guess the Fast and Furious franchise turned into a heist franchise a little bit. A little bit with Fast Five. Like Fast Five is them trying to do an Oceans film. Speaking of the Italian job, that came two years after Ocean's Eleven was released. And that is a like the epitome of like a ripoff kind of. It is, but it's still kind of fun. It is. It is very fun. Um, But it is very much you could see kind of Hollywood doing its formula things like, all right, get a disparate group of characters together. Have a couple little, you know funny side moments there and... there are things to be said about the italian job which is that like it's a film that realizes that jason statham is funny yeah. <laughs> which it took until spy to give someone else to be like yeah he's really funny edward norton seething contempt at having to do that movie <laughs> visually on screen you can see how much he hates being there yeah because uh, he was contractually obligated to do it and i ah uh, he fucking hates it so much and the fact that seth green is like i am the napster and today no one would know what that fucking means <laughs> yeah, that's true oh the italian job what a yes. classic film next week's film we'll talk about the italian job <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm curious no. to see how how that one aged because that does feel like one that uh, is pretty. It, it's very like the first on. Fast and Furious. Like if there were never a franchise, you're like here's a heist movie about stealing DVD players. Yeah. No, I mean, I to me the 2003 Italian Job, which I know is a remake of the Michael Caine film, but like it's it's fun. It's like good to watch on a plane. It's very light. It doesn't demand anything of you. It's charming for what it is, and then it's like yep. instantly disposable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. Well, with that, do you want to move into recently watched? Uh, yes. What have you seen lately? Uh, so I recently finished uh, watching the HBO docuseries I'll Be Gone in the Dark, uh, which is based on the book by Michelle McNamara about uh, her hunt for the Golden State Killer, um, also known as the East Area Rapist. Um, and, you know, I was curious. I, ha- I have not read the book. I, I kind of wanted to watch the docuseries cold because I didn't know too much about the case other than knowing that Michelle McNamara tragically died before she finished the book. Um, but also knowing that her research directly influenced them finally catching um, the killer, whose name is Joseph D'Angelo. Uh, and it wrapped up. Uh, it's what, six episodes? Yeah, uh, six episodes on Sunday night. And I found it a really deeply involving and like genuinely terrifying docuseries, like genuinely yes. scary uh, as it recounted uh, these rapes and these mur- and eventual murders. Uh, he started out as a ransacker and then as a rapist and then uh, started killing people. Um, but the way in which it's directed and shot and, and crafted is a really, you know, terrifying um, way that really, I think, effectively captures the terror that these victims felt and and people um who live in and around these areas and just women in general feel um from men who are terrible uh and you know the show's focus uh, is about half on the case half on the victims it interviews a number of the victims and survivors um which i think is a really smart idea to kind of lean into that lean into these people who went on to who, to continue to live, but were traumatized um, significantly after the fact. And then also delving into the life of Michelle McNamara, which I think is part of the book as well. Um, I'm told that the show follows the book pretty closely and that um, it's written in first person. She puts herself into it and and kind of her own experiences uh, and that kind of tragic ending as well. Um, And I liked it. I I thought it was a really effective, really interesting docuseries. The finale, which I won't go into details because Matt hasn't finished it yet, because Matt apparently had better things to do on Sunday night. Um, (laughs) uh, I was was watching reruns of Friends. (laughs) (laughs) So he did not have better things to do on Sunday night. Uh, I love Friends. but um, How many times have you seen seen Friends all the way through? I have seen Friends so many times that I've flirted with the idea of doing like a, a spinoff video series or podcast series just about friends. Yeah. Cause I know the show that well, I've watched it. Like I owned all the DVDs when they, I bought them as they came out, not the box yeah. set, like one season at a time. I would like, Oh, there's a new season of friends to buy. Yeah. And like, I watched all of it through. I, I, by this time I've probably watched it through like the whole series, probably six or seven times. 
Yeah. You know, I know this show inside and out. <laughs> yeah. It's, before before the kids were or the teens were binge watching The Office at nights on Netflix, I was pulling out my disc from my season one DVD set and putting it into my DVD player. When yeah, I went to bed. There's a lot to be interesting. You know, I know that we're getting a bit on a tangent here, but there is a lot of interesting things to be said about Friends in terms of the way it's sort of it's how it represents a sort of 90s um, white 90s heterosexual ideology and mm-hmm. just sort of like it's very, very afraid of anything that cannot be rendered masculine. Um Ross is a total sociopath, but like he's the romantic lead in a way like yeah. he's even though he's an awful person. Um, and it's weird to sort of see how the show develops and like what they lean into and where they find their strengths. And it, it, I don't know. I think there's a lot to be said about Friends, as, <laughs> as there would be over as any show that takes place over what, 10 seasons. Yeah. But you and know. yet was like a radical sitcom when it premiered, a, you know, a show that was only about like 20 something friends living together. Yes. Like, like sex and work and and, and, in the, and in the early seasons, you can see that the network is not totally comfortable with that, which is why yeah. they're like, what if they have an old neighbor named Mr. Heckles, you know, <laughs> yeah. and like, you know, and if, if he, you know, if, if they can't get or like, what if Rachel's boss at the coffee shop is kind of like a grump, you know, like, so they're not really like, can these you know, unknown 20 somethings carry this show and they do. And like, then those characters get killed off or disappear. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There's a lot to be said about friends. We'll do a friends podcast. We'll do a friends podcast. Um, back to the docuseries about, yeah, back to the the docuseries (laughs) about the murders. Uh, you know, the first five episodes are about the investigation at the end of the fifth episode. Uh, they had cameras with Pat and Oswald when they caught him, when uh, Joseph D'Angelo was arrested. So it really doesn't get into Joseph D'Angelo until the final episode. And even then, it really only devotes about half the episode to it and the other half of the episode to the survivors and how they lived their life um, and their reaction to when uh, this man was caught. Um, and, you know, I think that's appropriate for what this show is, because it is a show about survivors and it is a, a show about the long lasting effects of trauma more than it is a show about, like, what makes this man evil? See, yeah, to me, that's what makes I'll Be Gone in the Dark special. I think part of it is just sort of the tenacity of Michelle McNamara as sort of the citizen detective who just was very into true crime and had, was had a gifted writer and, and gifted researcher who was sort of doggedly pursued this case. But I would also say that, you know, I think uh, there's there is sort of a tendency uh, to sort of become obsessed with the 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 killer and look, you know, I mean, yeah, I, mean I think that I mean that goes into the roots of the true crime genre. With you know, if you go back to In Cold Blood, very little is about the Clutter family and um, you know what they suffered. Uh, it's largely about the killers and their journey and what they went through, and that sort of has sort of shaped what the genre has become is like, who, who are the killers? But I think because I'll be gone, the dark never forgets about the victims. It really unnerves you in a way that other stories, you know, can provide a clinical distance. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, I think there's a tendency. I mean, this is the reason why procedurals are so popular is we always want to know why, what's the motive. Mm-hmm. And the finale like offers a couple of possibilities, but really doesn't get bogged down into it that much. Um, because ultimately, I mean, as, as you look through human history and as we live through, you know, our lives, you see men do terrible things every single day. Well, and that's the other thing. It's like there, you, you definitely run the risk of like the more focus you put on the killer, the more you sort of accident or unintentionally glorify them. They become the protagonist in the story of other people's suffering. And then those, the victims, they disappear. They just become collateral in sort of this dark mythology. There is something that Patton says with regards to the killer's motive that I think is absolutely spot on. I won't spoil it here, but I I think you'll know it when you hear it. And I think that's kind of the thesis for the entire show. Um, uh, You you know, Joseph D'Angelo's life versus the lives of these survivors mm-hmm. um, and contrasting those two. So, um, but yeah, I, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating, it was a fascinating case. I, I think Michelle McNamara's work was absolutely essential to finally capturing this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, you know, it's just, 
I kept thinking about Zodiac while watching it because so much of the problem was that these separate police departments were not sharing information. They weren't sharing files. They were not able to share files or, you know, just didn't want to. And that's, you know, exactly what Fincher Chronicles and Zodiac. If we abolish the police, how will we not catch criminals? (laughs) (laughs) If they happen to move jurisdictions. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what databases and stuff look like nowadays, but I do know that that was a massive problem throughout the 70s. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, uh, for me, uh, my wife, uh, for her birthday, wanted to rewatch some movies that she loved. So we watched uh, we rewatched Gosford Park, which is her favorite movie of all time. And Gosford Park is still great. Uh, but we also rewatched uh, Sense and Sensibility. And my wife is a big Jane Austen fan. And she wanted to sort of she she sort of contends that Sense and Sensibility is the best Austen adaptation because of how it's able to, when you're adapting Austin, either you tend to get too far in the weeds of trying to make it just like the book and it renders it sort of uncinematic or you make it too cinematic and you kind of leave behind the sort of the personality of the work and it just becomes kind of Austin in name only. And it's, it's tricky to balance the two. And so Emma Thompson won um, best screen, best adapted screenplay for this film, uh, which Ang Lee directed. And it's, it really is quite marvelous. Uh, the, the plot is, is that this family, um, their, their father has died. He, he remarried, but because he left, um, uh, basically daughters, they can't inherit. Um, so they're sort of, wondering about their prospects as they sort of move to this cottage. And it's sort of this incisive social commentary about how wealthy people are always like, Oh, I think it'd be so nice to build a cottage. Like how they sort of patronize, but without ever actually engaging with uh, people's financial circumstances and sort of the relationships that uh, these sisters played by Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet have with these various men and sort of, you know, which ones are trustworthy and which ones are more involved, care more about their own social status. Um, and to me, what makes Sense and Sensibility work and what I really took away from this most recent viewing is I find that the gentle direction of Ang Lee, the way he knows how to just put the camera and really sell character, really meds well with the sharpness of Emma Thompson's script. She knows the dialogue and comic beats to hit to make it not feel modern, but to let a current audience know, oh, this is what you should be feeling right now. These are the these are the social mores of the time. This is what these characters are feeling. This is you know this is an this is a this character has overstepped, and but to do it in such a way that it still feels immediate and just that balance really made me first it made me wish that Angley would go back to making real movies again <laughs> instead of fucking Gemini Man, which we talked As about we last, week. last week. Yeah. yeah um, or that, and that Emma Thompson would do more screenwriting because I think she she knocked it out of the park. And the film is gorgeous to look at and has an amazing cast. I mean, it also has Alan Rickman. It has Hugh Grant. It has Hugh Laurie. It has Imelda Staunton. Um, it's a deep bench. And it turns 25 this year. Um, and it's just, it's a great film. So if you haven't seen Sense and Sensibility, I, I strongly recommend checking it out. She did write a movie last year. Last Christmas. That's right. With her husband, who she met, I believe, on the set of Sense and Sensibility. She also wrote the Nanny McPhee movies, I think. That I knew. That I knew she wrote the Nanny McPhee movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How does your wife feel about uh, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice? She loves Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice, but she feels that that Sense and Sensibility gets more to the core of the social inequalities that Austin is, is sort of interested in whereas the pride and prejudice is more they they pride and prejudice adaptations tend to lead more into the romance of it all yeah. and like that's fine like it doesn't necessarily make it a bad film and she thinks that the pride and prejudice uh his his adaptation is is great but there's more you know um happening and that sense and sensibility kind of captures what's happening in terms of this world that austin repeatedly returns to in all of her novels my fiance is also a massive Jane Austen fan. She loves the Pride and Prejudice. I think Sense and, and Sense and Sensibility are her two favorite adaptations. So. Yeah, but you know, if you're looking for a good new adaptation, the new Emma is also great. The it's new so Emma that came out this year. Yeah, check that out. I feel like yeah. in a, di- I don't know if it's the pandemic or if it's just society. I feel like in a different 
world, Autumn De we'd all be talking about Autumn DeWild. Like for I that would to, hope be, so. to be her, I mean, like for that to be her directorial debut for a feature is is really incredible. Yeah, and I feel like uh, my fiance and I actually were talking about this recently. Like it feels like she got kind of screwed because that movie came out right as everything happened, and yes. so like people just stopped talking about it. Um, but my fiance was like, if that movie does not get nominated for like five Oscars this year, then they're fucked. So because there's nothing else coming out, and like, what are you gonna do? There Give really is all the Oscars. Ugh. Uh, best director nominee sam hargraves <laughs> yeah sure sure why not um all right so uh we asked y'all to vote about what should we talk about next week on the podcast and you all selected being john malkovich which is currently streaming on netflix um malkovich malkovich yeah that'll be a fun one because i think yes. that'll also give us an opportunity to, die, to talk about spike jones which we haven't yes. done before and charlie kaufman uh, and Charlie Kaufman, yes. Who is so, insane. <laughs> have you I read have not talked to like multiple book people who have not been able to make it through Ant Kind. <laughs> I, I think, I, I think movie people I wouldn't be able to make it through Ant Kind. Because I'm like, yeah. I've seen Synecdoche, New York. I'm not gonna be able to make it through Ant Kind. <laughs> I think movie people who are huge fans of his are like, yeah, like really on its wavelength and like barreling through it, but like book people are like, what is this? <laughs> Self-indulgent <Yeah>. garbage. <laughs> Uh, so yes, definitely. So come back uh, next week and listen to us talk about being John Malkovich. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. You can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week. We'll get back to your music shortly, but first, did you know that prescription prices are different at different pharmacies? You could literally drive across the street and get a different price. That's crazy. But with GoodRx, you can instantly compare prices at every pharmacy in your neighborhood and save up to 80%. You're probably thinking there's a catch, right? Nope. It's 100% free and can save you money whether you have insurance or not. In fact, it can often beat your copay. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.